Open your Bibles if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I know that there's been several several people in our in our fellowship and our body this past oh, several weeks that have dealt with death and funerals and things, and I don't in any way, shape, intend to make life light of that. Um, but I do want to ask a question, and that is, have you properly planned for what you're wearing to your funeral? Not something most of us give thought to. I'll admit I've, I've, I've given some thought to what I might want to have be said or, or sung or something, but I, I don't know that I gave a lot of thought to what I'm going to wear, right? And that, that gives you kind of an idea where we're going this morning. So, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Over the past several weeks, we've been focusing on the issue of service as we've looked at Second Corinthians. Uh, chapter 2, we talked about the fact that we are called uh, as a result of having been conquered. And that may or may not be how you looked at your salvation, but that's pretty much it. Conquered not through physical force, but by His love, His mercy, and His grace. And having been so conquered, we are introduced into a life of service. Service first to God, His kingdom, His church, um, to one another, and of course, to the world. Uh, chapter 3 we read about our adequacy to that task and found out that we weren't, but we are because He made us adequate. He prepared us and made us adequate. Um, last week in chapter 4, we looked at the, the reality that we hold this treasure, which is to say that as we step into service, we touch eternity. We can, in this world, through the things we do in this world, impact eternity. That's a treasure the opportunity to do that. We hold that treasure in this mortal clay human flesh, which is wonderfully, even in its frailty and brokenness, still incredibly value. We hold this treasure in earthen vessels. So we're talking about our mortality, and, and we, we talked about our mortality. We kind of ended last week on a note of talking about loss. The recognition of loss is a normative part of, of human life. Not so much loss of the tangible things that we're going to lose anyway. That's the nature of tangible things. But the, the terrific loss of relationship, people that are close to us, and we lose them. And we made the distinction, very important distinction, that for the believer, all such loss is temporary because we will be reunited. But for, but for the person outside of Christ, all such loss is permanent. And that is horrific. That's one of the tremendous differences between those who are in a relationship with Christ and those who are not. For those in a relationship with the Lord, that relationship means every loss is temporary. And that sets the stage for where we're going in chapter 5. And I do want to close with just the last couple of um, verses from chapter 4. Uh, not our text, but it sets the stage for our text. So uh, chapter 4, again, talking about loss, the reality of that, um, the reality of just living in, in, in this vessel of clay that we do. Paul writes this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For the momentary light affliction, this momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far, far beyond all comparison. While we do not look at things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen 
are eternal. And that really sets the stage uh, where we're going to go in this next chapter. So I think with that kind of a framework, let's just go ahead. And we're not going to even attempt to do all of chapter 5 in one setting. I've, I've, I've encouraged you to read along, read ahead. And if you're doing that, you know that chapter 5 is just full of incredible stuff. And so we're going to break chapter 5 into some smaller pieces. Uh, this morning we're just going to tackle the first 10 verses. So chapter 5, beginning in the first verse. For we know if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, always be of good courage, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and ask, Lord, as we look to it this morning. Father, in a passage of scripture which in some ways is almost kind of cryptic, Lord, uh, that through the aid of your spirit, Lord, we'll understand uh, the truth you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, in these first few verses, Paul makes it pretty clear that this life and, and the mortal body that we're living in, if you didn't already know this, is, is a temporary gig. It ends, right? I think we all know that, right? And through that, Paul makes it pretty clear. We have this tent. He compares this mortal flesh that we live in to a tent. Uh, and he contrasts that with this dwelling we'll have in eternity, which is not. It's permanent. Like a tent is temporary and an actual structure is a little more permanent. Um, but then he adds this also note of warning. It's just kind of a simple statement. We have a temporary dwelling. We'll someday have a permanent dwelling. He adds at the very end this note of warning that when that change takes place, there's something else that will happen. And he raises the issue of judgment. So when we make that transition, he raises the issue of just judgment. So we're going to walk through that this morning. So first of all, all our current dwelling and then our future dwelling, our current dwelling. Paul states we have an earthly dwelling of skin. I mean, it's pretty obvious what he's doing. He's comparing, and it's an entirely reasonable thing, this body that we have with, with the tents that they lived in. Um, when the Bible says Paul was a tent maker, Paul dealt with, worked with leather. That's what he actually did, because they made their tents out of animal skins. And so if you had a temporary dwelling, it was an animal skin. If you had a permanent dwelling, it was made of something else. Well, in the very same way, we have a temporary dwelling made of, for lack of better words, animal skin, right? Which someday we will move out of. So there's that contrast between our physical earthly dwelling in our skin and something that we're going to have next. And, and the, the word picture stresses the temporary nature of what we have now without going into a, a great deal of detail about what we'll have then. The stress is the temporal nature 
of what we have now. And it's a direct reference to those verses at the end of chapter 4 where he said, for those things which are seen are temporal. That's this. But the things which are not seen, what we're going to get, that's eternal. So we're dealing with that kind of a tension there. And, and the point to make is that we have to have that tension. We have to live as, as, as believers. We have to live as followers of Christ with that tension, that we live with something now, which great, I can understand it because I can see it, but knowing that my eternity, I'm going to spend a lot longer in something, wearing something, being something, I have no idea what it'll look like. But that's what I'm living for. I have to live for what I can't yet see. And the important thing to note, without getting in the details of what it might look, because we can't, is to know that as a follower of Christ, I have to live with that simply in order to function. You look at, at Jesus. Jesus constantly had that, I know where I'm going, I know what I can look forward to, that's what keeps me going. Uh, the author of Hebrews wrote this in a passage we know so well. Uh, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, which tells us that what he's doing is a model for what we have to do, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him. That gives us Jesus' mindset. He had that, I know where I'm going. I know what's happening right now, as horrific as it might be, and we can point to so many things in his earthly existence. Indescribably horrific. And the whole thing was hard from incarnation on to resurrection. But he endured that knowing that he had an eternal future. The Apostle Paul follows that same example. We just read it this morning, momentary light affliction. Now, you read anything about the Apostle Paul's life, and you know momentary light affliction does not describe the Apostle Paul's life. I mean, yeah, from being beaten and thrown in jail and being beaten and thrown in jail and being beaten, you know, it was like a broken record for him, to, you know, the whole thing. But he said, in comparison... In comparison, the weight of glory far beyond all comparison, right? Think about the parables that Jesus told. Not just the ones that were specifically about eternity, but the whole mindset that sits behind so many of the parables he tells. It's a, this is the situation now, that's going to be the situation in the future. You know, the, you know, the, the stewards, you know, like one guy got 10, one guy got five, one guy got one, and some invested it well, invested it for. That's all, that's all based on a, this is a now time, and then the, the master comes back, and it's a then time, right? Um, the 10 virgins, right? There's the now time, they're all going to the wedding. There's the then time when five of them run out, right? Um, the sower, the tares among the wheat, the workers hired throughout. All of those parables are structured on a, this is how things look now, it's going to how they look then, right? Even, like a, even the parables about forgiveness, even his teachings about 
forgiveness. You know, you have this servant that has a massive debt and he goes to the master and the master forgives him and then he goes out and he finds a servant that owes him two bucks and he beats the guy up and the master finds out about it and he goes, guess what? Those debts that were forgiven, they're not forgiven now. Right? That's all based on a this is a now and then there's a then structure. These two specific points in time. So many of the things that Jesus said were built on this um, model. And I would suggest, and I, and I use that word deliberately, there's a difference between reading something in the text because we believe and affirm confidently that the Word of God is inspired by God, authoritatively transmitted, or rather accurately transmitted to us, hence authoritative. God says it, that makes it true, right? When we read it, though, and draw a conclusion, we can't make that statement about our conclusions. You know, my conclusions are not inspired. <laughs> they're not necessarily accurate, right? So they're not authoritative, right? But they're what I work with, right? And so a lot of people confuse those two things, right? They draw a conclusion from Scripture, and they want it to be like, thus saith the Lord when God didn't say it, right? Now, your conclusions are necessary. We have to, you know, draw conclusions, but we always want to be careful with them, right? So when I say I would suggest that like a clue that I'm giving you one of my conclusions, right? And I, what I've concluded as I read this and meditate on this is, is this. Um, first off, as I, as I already said, you have to have this kind of a now-then perspective. You have to have a focus on eternity to function as a Christian. And I would also conclude, that means you're free to disagree, um, but you may be wrong, I'm just letting you know. Um, I would conclude that one you have to have this perspective to function as, as a follower of Christ. I would also conclude, if you're functioning as a follower of Christ, if you're functioning with a Christian understanding, a faith as you understand it, and you don't have to focus on eternity, you don't have to ground your actions in an expectation of eternity, you might want to go back and check your understanding of what a Christian is. And you might want to go back and check how a Christian should be living. Because through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. And I'm not saying we should go out and look for them. But it's been my experience, the, the more I invest in following Christ, in a lot of ways the worse things get. Because I'm dealing with me, first of all. I don't have to have anybody come along and say you're a Christian and start picking on me. The more, the, the, the more I endeavor to draw close to Christ, the more, the more I don't like it. The more I struggle with it. So even, even with that as a starting point, even dealing with my own nature and flesh, the more I try to draw close to Him, the more I need that encouragement of eternity to make it work. And if I don't need the encouragement of eternity, I might want to reevaluate how I'm thinking and how I'm acting out. Just offering that as a suggestion. That's for you to do what you want to with. Point being, we're not in eternity yet. But we will be found in eternity. And that's the assumption Paul makes in verses 2 and 3. We're going to face eternity. And we're going to stand in eternity. And then comes the issue of am I properly dressed 
for it? What does it mean to be dressed for it? When Paul is this entire passage dealing with the question of you know being found clothed and not being found naked, he's not actually talking about our clothing, okay? I think we, I think we can get there. He's not just talking about the fact that you know I want to make sure I have the right, I have some clothing on, so I don't embarrass myself, right? No, it's it's this is all based on the truth that Jesus. It, delivered with the whole parable of the wedding guest. Remember the wedding guest? The one that didn't have the right garment on got thrown out. Now that's not suggesting he was buck naked. He didn't have the right garment on. And the right garment was indication that he was someone that was supposed to be there. The garment was a revelation of his identity. Here's another way to look at it. Another way to look at it, um, this all, of course, roots back to the Garden of, of Eden in the fall, right? And we all, all know the story, right? That when Adam and Eve sinned, they suddenly said, oh my God, we're naked. And they put together clothes of some kind. I don't have a clue what it looked like, you know, of some kind of garments made out of fig leaves, right? And they covered up their nakedness, right? Do you think that that nakedness was just their physical nakedness? Or was it something else? What the garments that they assembled in the Garden of Eden were, were an attempt to cover not just their physical nakedness, but their sinfulness. Their character had changed. And because they had gone from people that did not know what sin was to people who did know what sin was, their character had changed. And that, I would suggest, was what they were attempting to hide. Not so much their physical nakedness, but their spiritual nakedness. They are now people not suitable for the presence of God because of their sin. Because nothing physically had changed. Nothing physically had changed to be covered. It was something within that needed to be covered up. And that's the nakedness that Paul refers to in this passage. We don't want to appear naked, but properly clothed. Our garments are an indication of our preparedness, our suitability of a presence before God. Because he says in verse 4, we're clothed in order that that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. The garments we receive in this process of transforming from this life, a life of clay, to that life, the garments that we receive will be part of the transformation of our being. How that's going to work, I have no idea. I don't want to go beyond what the text says. Right? Our garments will be an indication of our preparedness and our suitability. Now, getting back to the present, Paul says in verse starting in verse 9, right now we don't have those garments of eternity. We look like everybody else. So instead, Paul says, we have the Spirit as a pledge. The presence of the Spirit of God within us, that's that affirmation that I need, that I really am different. I really am different than the person outside of Christ. I really am different than a person that doesn't have eternity to hope for, but rather dreads eternity or simply pushes it out of their mind. I have the Spirit functioning in me as a pledge and moving me towards a lifestyle that is pleasing towards Him. See, that's my... What does the book of Revelation say at the end? About God? They were given robes of righteousness. The robes were an indication. They were a part of the process of righteousness, Right? 
But that's in the, in the future. All I can do in the presence is three things. I can walk by faith. He talks about that here. I can aim to please God. He talks about that here. And I can hold on to courage, the confidence that I can have based on what He does in me. He's doing an internal work that I yet cannot see outside. It remains invisible. It's a pretty effective summary of how I should be living now. Walk by faith, aim to please God, and hold on to courage, this confidence that God is working in me. And the important thing to remember is that fixed date, that fixed date in eternity, um, is the date at which I make that transition. All of us make that transition on a different date. But whatever that date in eternity is that we make that transition, that's verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. You know, um, last week I mentioned that individual, we've probably all met him, who um, said they plan on spending eternity not in heaven, they don't care because they're going to be partying with their friends, right? We all know that person, right? And we said, what? <laughs> Where was that promise made? That's not the deal. Here's the deal. The deal is we all stand before God in judgment. Everybody. Everybody. Um, the person that's lost lives with the lie that um, that's not going to happen, right? Back in the late 60s, there was a really popular song. You might recognize the words. Um, I know you keep saying to yourselves, you're talking about the pointlessness of life, the fact that life ends with nothing. If that's the way you feel, why didn't she just put an end to it all? No, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment. For I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. The pointlessness of a life without an expectation of a hereafter, right? But that isn't all there is. We must all appear. Now, I want to take that statement one word at a time. We must all appear. First of all, um, we... Paul includes himself in this. Nobody's above it. Nobody's below it. No one's exempted from it. Everybody must, not an option. All, all humanity appear. That's the key word, appear, right? It, it, the idea of appearing doesn't just mean to show up. That, that day when we, when we stand in judgment will not just be a day we have to show up for. No, when it says we will appear, it means to be revealed. It means that something about our character will be revealed in that day. And what I thought about when I was just looking at this word, it's that scene in Pinocchio, you know, when, when Pinocchio and Lampquick are shooting pool, and all of a sudden, first Lampquick starts that process by which his outward physical being is changed into a donkey. Right? Great scene. If you don't remember, you need to watch Pinocchio again. Great movie. So he, he, his, his lamprey's body right in front of Pinocchio is changed into that of a donkey. The point being, if you'll pardon the expression, he already was a jackass. His body is simply changing into what he already is. He's being revealed for what he is. That's this term appearing. It means that the internal character will be revealed. 
What we are inside, this is terrifying if you think about it, what we are inside will be revealed in that day. It all relates back to the idea in verse 3 of nakedness. All pretense is gone. Let's be honest. How many of us would like to be standing in a room, forget physical nakedness, that would be embarrassing enough, but imagine if the genuine character of who you were, warts and all, was suddenly somehow revealed to every person in the room. Absolutely no privacy at all. No thank you. Right? Mm -mm. Yes. I know myself well enough that you don't all need to see it. Right? And that's true of all of us, right? Because we're all this work in progress, and we've all got some good stuff, but we all got some stuff that is. So in this matter of appearance, the very person that we're going to be will be revealed. But here's the glorious part. In that same instance, the work of our transformation will also be revealed. So what will be revealed is not the person that we were or are right now, but the person that we are in eternity. And that's what he meant by being clothed with righteousness. That's what he meant in the first part of the chapter about not being found naked. It doesn't mean not being found without clothes, but means being found for all of our weaknesses and all of our failings. When we appear before Christ, that's not what's going to be demonstrated. What will be demonstrated is our character based on our relationship with Him. And the best way I can illustrate this, the best way I can illustrate this is with a story that some of you I know know, some of you may not, um, about the opportunity I had while living in Greece to participate in the criminal justice system there. Just so I know who I got. How many know that one? Okay, some of you don't. Uh, I'll be quick. I'll try to be quick. When we were living in Greece, due to a complete and total misunderstanding, I was arrested. I uh, spent almost two full days in jail. Um, got to walk my way through the Greek criminal justice system. Um, I was treated as if I were a felon because there's no distinction between felon and misdemeanor in the Greek system, the whole package, Interpol, they've got my picture, front and side, all that stuff. Um, and I got to go through a trial, a full-blown trial, and one of the things that I learned in the trial is that I had nothing to say because I was assumed as a liar. You don't get that far in the Greek criminal justice system without being guilty of something, hence you must be a liar, you're a bad person anyway. If you didn't break this law, you broke something else, which is probably true. Um, but the point was, um, what I had to explain was that the reason I didn't have the lousy driver's license they wanted is because a Greek government official told me I didn't need it, and he was wrong. Um, but if I can't explain that, because they don't want to hear from me, how do I get out of this? Because I did break the law, I didn't have the right license. And um, my lawyer, who I just met, explained to me that this mutual acquaintance we had was going to explain to the, the court the whole deal. Well, he didn't know about my going to the consulate in Oakland. He wasn't there. And if he's going to tell them about what happened at the consulate in Oakland, the only place he can get it from is me, and they don't believe me. So why should they believe him? He said, don't worry. And when your Greek lawyer tells you that, it means nothing. 
Um, yeah. So the moment came, I got up, and they said, you know, you asked my name, and your son, and I gave my dad's name, and then he said, sit down and shut up. And I did. That's all I had to say. And then my associate got up, who happened to be a very, very influential person. I don't want to bring his name into it, but he was a very influential person, very, had a lot of gravitas, I would say. And when he, they said, who are you? And he gave his name, and they said, uh, what do you do? And he said what he did, the room went silent, quietest I heard it in the 10 hours I sat there. And um, they said, well, what's going on? And he told them everything I would have said. Now, they're not stupid. They know he got it from me, but they don't care. It came from him. And when he got done saying what had happened, they said to him, what should we do? And he told them, we need to get... Yanni's home to his family because his kids are scared. And if you want this piece of paper, let him get it, and then boom. I'm out of the building less than two minutes later, thinking, what in the world just happened? I'm gone, out the door, right? And um, as we're walking out, the lawyer, he said, I bet you wonder what happened. I said, you're darn right, I wonder what happened. Uh, he said, in the Greek legal system, um, you have one witness that knows you and will show up with you. And what they say really doesn't mean anything. Our, our friend here, he was just having fun. Because he really didn't have to say anything. It was the fact that he was with you that counted. And when he shows up with you, his status, gravitas, if you will, his gravitas transfers to you. And what you were accused of, they are not going to bother a person with that weight of personality, that, that, that important. They're not going to bother somebody that important with a driver's license question. They wouldn't care if you didn't even have one. It, they would have never bothered you. You're much too important a person. So it was, it was the weight of his character being transferred to me that changed the whole equation. An incredible thing about that moment for me was uh, the name of that witness is the word that Jesus used to describe the role of the Holy Spirit in us. Paracletos. Jesus reached in, and the system hasn't changed. The Greek legal system hasn't changed in thousands of years. Uh, Jesus reached into the Greek legal system to use that word to describe the Holy Spirit. And what does that tell me? The relevance of that is this, is that when I stand in this hour of judgment, my identity will not be mine. My identity will be mine as defined by the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of me. You know, we use that, that figure of speech when trying to you know, get people saved. We say, well, what are you going to do when you stand before God? And he says, why should I let you into heaven? Many of you have seen that evangelistic model. I'm not sure I'll get a chance to say anything. Because I'm fully confident the Holy Spirit will say, excuse me. It pleases the court. Yanni says, my friend. Done deal. It's identity. Identifying with the person of Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's that clothing Paul is talking about. When I talk about being clothed with righteousness, that's what that, all that means. It's our identification with the person of Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us that gives us the standing that we need. Now, there is this issue of reward. We will be rewarded based on what we have done, and, and, I'll, and I'll touch on this quickly. The really cool thing about this is uh, we'll be rewarded based on what we have done. That's not the normal word for your deed like something that you do. That's a different word completely. This is a word, the actual word is based on the word praso, which is, interestingly, the word that the early church used to entitle the book of Acts. Our word acts, 
comes from that word. And if you read the book of Acts, you know, some say it's the Acts of the, of the Apostles, some say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not in the book, so we don't know. Um, but the whole point is, the book of Acts is not just a recitation of individual events. It is a pattern of action. It's a narrative, if you will, of the Holy Spirit working through the early church to build the early church. And it's intended to be read that way. This, 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 this pattern of behavior by the Spirit of God working through his church to bring about the church. Right? It's that pattern. The events in the, in the sequence designed to demonstrate that pattern or that narrative, if you will. That's what we're going to be judged upon. It's not going to be, well, you did one thing on this day and therefore, boom. It's going to be, here was the pattern of your life from the moment you came into faith with Christ. What were the kind of things you did that, that revealed the kind of character you were in light of the presence of the Spirit of God working within you? Right? So, I mean, you can take that both ways, you know. What about this really great thing I did? Well, that's, that's great. That's good, right? What about this really bad thing I did? Well, yeah, that's a bad thing. What God's going to be concerned about is, is, is that narrative of our life, the whole of our life, right? It's a pretty bad analogy, but the best one I can come up with, you know those Olympic events where they throw out the high score and the low score? That's kind of it. It's the, it's, it's, it's the mean of our life, the average of our life, as we walk day by day with him. Really believe that's what he's talking about here, right? This makes, I think, a lot of things clear when I realize that this is all about the revelation of who we are in the person of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ working through us. What is being said here? Well, it starts with the assurance that we have eternity. Started where we were last week, that this, temp, this thing is wearing out, it's going away, but I have the assurance of eternity. And with eternity comes judgment, the revelation of our character by our deeds. Our assurance that in this present time, we have the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us. And in that present time, we have the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit to speak for us. All of which is to prepare us for that inevitable moment when we stand before him. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. We have such a strong confirmation in your word, Lord, uh, that, that the songwriter was wrong when they said, is that all there is? Um, as if to say there's nothing more. Because we know, Lord, Father, we know. Your word says you've set eternity in our hearts, Lord. We know there's more. And Father, though we, we look forward to eternity with so many questions, Lord, we do also look forward to it with confidence and courage because we know that even now you are preparing us for the then. Father, we can confidently assert that everything that happens in our lives today is preparing us for a then, Lord. Father, we lift our loved ones before you, Lord. Those who are showing themselves resistant, Lord. Father, I think we all have loved ones who are showing themselves resistance, resistant to that work of preparation that you would do in our hearts. Father, you have taken our souls captive by your love and mercy, Lord. 
You have made us your servants. Father, you've made us your slaves through the act of a love conquest, Lord. Father, we pray that those close to us who are far from you would yield, Father, to that act of love and mercy, grace by which you call us, Lord. Father, that is our confidence. That is the confidence, Father, which we rely on this week as we serve you, serving others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.